this is Laren Baker, and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with James Beard Award-winning food and wine writer, Carolyn Jung. Based here in the Bay Area, Carolyn writes for some of the top newspapers in the country, including the San Jose Mercury News, and is the author of the cookbooks San Francisco Chef's Table and East Bay Cooks. Her work has been published in some of the most respected publications, including Wine Spectator, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Michelin Guide, and she is also creator of the award-winning blog, Food Gal. I am so excited to welcome Carolyn to the podcast. Hey, Carolyn. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so happy to see you. I don't know if you remember this, but I first met you in 2016. Um, at the James Beard Taste America SF. I remember that well. We were sitting at the same table. Yes, that was a feast of dishes. It was incredible. And I can't believe so much time has passed since then. It makes me feel too old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. You haven't changed one bit. (laughs) I always start by asking, what's the first thing that you remember cooking? And about how old were you? Well, probably it's got to be scrambled eggs or an omelet. And I remember watching my dad do it on the weekends and then sort of mimicking what he was doing. He loved his, should I say this, spam with eggs. Yes. <laughs> so Mine too. I grew up on that. that. <laughs> yes, it's, it's an Asian Hawaiian kind of love. Yeah. <laughs> So he would dice it up and he'd either put it in scrambles or in an omelet with cheese. And I I think that was definitely the first thing I learned how to make just by watching him. And then if I got up early in the morning before everyone else, I would just kind of go play in the kitchen and, and bring out the frying pan, crack the eggs and make some myself. Oh, scrambled eggs was my first cooking experiment ever also so I share that with you but I think it's like common yeah yeah. well it's easy (laughs) Um, everybody has eggs usually in the house (laughs) yeah so it sounds like you already had a very keen interest in cooking at a young age I think it was more that I loved to eat. (laughs) That was the driving force, which I'm sure is probably true for many of us. I have, uh, I always say I grew up in San Francisco and I'm a Chinese American background. And I think the two of those together just sort of created this love for food in my genes from the start. And I was just one of those kids who always baked on the weekends and, my friends and I, when we were in high school, we wouldn't give each other normal birthday or Christmas presents. We would save up our money instead and take each other out to a fancy meal like at Masa or Chez Panisse. That was how I grew up. And to me, it was normal and it was completely delicious. Oh, I love that. That's a better way to celebrate. If, <laughs> who needs the presents? I'd rather I just know, go to Chez Panisse. Right? <laughs> They end up in the back of the closet and you never remember that they're there, but a fantastic meal with a good friend, a best friend, you will always remember that. That is so, so true. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and how you got started in food writing? It was actually kind of by accident. I know that so many people these days I think a lot of it is driven by the Food Network and how popular those shows are, but so many people grew up 
really just um, dreaming and fantasizing of becoming a food writer or a TV uh, cooking show host. And that was never really on my radar. I started my career as a news journalist working on staff at various newspapers. And I loved what I was doing. And I happened to be at the Mercury News at that point in my career and um, was on its initial race and demographics team, which was a group of reporters and an editor solely focused on minority community issues and just sort of bringing to light stories and concerns that they had that probably would never otherwise get the attention that it deserved. And as you can imagine, it was a very gratifying beat to cover. So I wasn't really looking to change, but our food editor at the paper went on maternity leave and then decided not to come back. And those jobs are few and far between. There's usually just one food editor or one food writer at each newspaper, even less these days, unfortunately. So I remember seeing the notice for the opening on our bulletin board at work, and I thought about it for a hot minute and kind of thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, but huh, I like what I do and I'm not sure if I'm ready for a change and whether that was the right change for me. So then my friends who are fellow reporters and editors at the paper, they all came running up to me and said, did you see the job that was posted? You're going to apply, right? Because that's like your dream job. And I thought, really? You think so? (laughs) Because I think they were always sick of me talking about food all the time. I mean, when we had the time, we would go out to lunch during the day and we always would try new places and I bring cookies into work all the time. So everybody there knew sort of my fondness for cooking, eating, going out to restaurants. And the best advice I got actually was from a a friend of mine who at that point was a freelance columnist for the food section at the paper. And she had had many roles at the paper over the years, but she was a mom now and so had scaled back her, her career and was more doing freelancing, but she'd been a sports writer. She'd been a news writer. She'd been an editor. And she said to me, go home tonight, take a pad of paper and a pencil and give yourself one minute to come up with ideas for your current beat. And then give yourself another minute to come up with ideas for the food beat. And I am always embarrassed to say that the list of ideas for the food beat was like huge and then the one for my own beat which I've been doing for a couple years at that point was minuscule so I think right there and then that sort of gave me the confidence and the punch in the gut to say hey you should really consider this because obviously your self-consciousness is thinking about this so I applied for the job and got it and it was the best decision I ever made. Wow, serendipity and what yeah, luck timing and luck and maybe uh, just your friends nudging you when you don't feel like uh, being pushed that way necessarily yourself. Yeah, and so was this before you began Food Gal or after? Yeah, it was before. Um, so I was at the Mercury News. My gosh. 18 years, and 11 of that was on the food section. 
And toward the end of my time there, I think this was sort of when blogs were coming onto the scene and it was just crazy blogs and blogs everywhere. And the newspaper said, you know, for everyone at every various departments, you guys ought to start a blog. So of course we figured we needed to have a food and wine blog of some sort. So all of us kind of took turns contributing stories to it. And so it gave me the background and the knowledge of how to do a blog as rudimentary as it was back then. And so in 2008, like, unfortunately, so many of my colleagues, I was laid off from the paper Mm. and didn't necessarily know what my plan B was. So I thought, well, at the very least I could start my own blog because I already kind of knew how to do it. And so I, I picked WordPress as a platform because that was the one we were using at the paper. And so it was an easy transition. And then my husband, who actually worked as an IT manager at the paper, he helped me do all the technical stuff because I'm just terrible with that kind of thing. So we created Food Gal in 2008 and I've been doing it ever since. You have a pulse on food in the Bay Area like nobody else that I know. Oh, I don't know about that. There are some <laughs> well, very knowledgeable, experienced people out there these days. You have definitely you. immersed yourself in it and you've you know, interacted with some of the most creative minds here. And so I'm curious, how has food in the Bay Area changed since you started in the industry? Wow, it's uh, definitely just um, widened in terms of the wealth of ethnic cuisines that we have now. And I also think just uh, the, the level of talent that there is in the Bay Area now. We've, we've always had chefs who commanded the limelight and who were pioneers. I mean, Alice Waters, for instance, Jeremiah Tower, so many more back uh, then in the 80s, I believe. But um, I think now chefs, I think those, there are so many restaurants that have been around so long and trained so many other people who have then gone on to open their own places, whether to do something in fine dining or to sort of more follow their heritage and do something very soulful and personal to them. I think we're very lucky to live in this time, pandemic aside, of course, that we have these these chefs and these mom and pop places, these fine dining places, these fast casual places. We just have this incredible wealth to choose from. And You know, I hope it stays that way for a very long time, given all the challenges right now. It is definitely quite a challenge. Um, I'm sure that you've spoken to so many chefs and restaurants throughout the pandemic, but I guess I was just wondering what impacted you and the stories that you could tell during this time? Well, I think especially in the beginning, we were all kind of just stuck at home. And so the interviews I would I used to do by driving up to wine country or San Francisco either kind of shut down completely or just got 
done by Zoom or by phone instead. I think things very much in the beginning came to a halt. There were publications that, you know, they had no idea if advertisers were still going to be taking out pages in their newspapers and their magazines at that point. So they were being very conservative in terms of the number of pages that they were going to print, the number of stories that they would buy from writers, et cetera. So I think that as everything sort of wore on over the months and people realized that, well, this is going to be more than just a couple of months here. This is going to be maybe the next year, maybe longer. And how are we going to deal with this? I think that people have made very uh, creative choices and come up with very creative ways to deal with everything. And I mean, I'm happy and just heartened that we live in California where we seem to have handled the pandemic fairly well. I mean, we had our ups and downs, but compared to a lot of other places, we are doing pretty well, relatively speaking. And that has given restaurants and other businesses the ability to open up again for inside dining, maybe not to the extent that they used to, you know, packing people in at bars and turning tables many, many times, but at least they're able to, to, to get back a lot of the business that they used to have, which is a huge thing for them. I talked to quite a few chefs during last year and early part of this year, and I say most of them said they were lucky if they broke even at all over these past few months, and most of them did not. Yeah, it's so devastating, and I've, I've heard that as well. And I do think that it's... a t- people who have been able to survive, it was also a testament to just how they were able to pivot and be creative and rethink their menus and rethink how they were actually going to provide it to their customers, whether it was purely takeout or family meals or or eating outdoors and just restructuring how they were going to put tables outside. I remember this one... um... A former sort of chef headhunter had posted something on Facebook at the early part of the pandemic. And she said something to the effect that if anyone can get through this, it will be chefs and restaurateurs because they are so used to being in the weeds and having to deal with so many different challenges and pressures at once and digging their way out of it quickly and smartly. So yeah, more power to them, to the ones that managed to do that because this has been a really long and trying time. And I feel for the ones that weren't able to make it because so many restaurants operate on the barest margins as it is and to to face what they did these past 18 months is just unprecedented right i mean it's a hard business in the best of times and exactly oh gosh your first book was san francisco chef's table um extraordinary recipes from the city by the bay and you wrote this 2013 ish um which I feel like was a particularly exciting and incredible time in the city. What was writing the book like and how was it like translating the chef's recipes for the home cook? 
It was this particular book. So I've done two books and they've both been by different publishers. And the San Francisco one was uh, a bit crazy to say the least. I remember when I agreed to do it and I announced on social media that I was doing it. And they're this type of book, uh, San Francisco Chef Sable, they, they've done this book with other cities around the country. And so I started hearing from some of the other authors or friends of authors who were saying how many all-nighters they pulled and how crazy the deadline was. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? So it was a pretty crazy deadline. I mean, um, this publisher for uh, I'm not quite sure why, but maybe it's just part of their business model. They, they do these books really quickly. So. I had three months to do this entire thing. Oh, my, was, my jaw just dropped. <laughs> get the chefs on board, write the chapters, get the recipes, edit them, try and test. Uh, we For this book, I, to be honest, we weren't able to test every single recipe, but I think with the help of friends and family, we did probably, I'd say 70% of them. But yeah, it was just to to write all this in a three month period was pretty trying. Um, I mean, I remember sometimes just looking at my husband some days and thinking, "Help me! I'm going crazy," <laughs> you know. But uh, it came out really well, and I was really proud to to do it as my first book. So, what is it wor- like working with all these chefs? So, that book was gosh, probably around 30 restaurants and chefs. And I remember one chef's just saying to me when she realized what I was doing, she said, oh my God, it must be like herding wild cats. And I said, (laughs) yeah, it kind of is. Because first, chefs are not the greatest with deadlines. And I don't blame them at all because their lives are crazy. They have so many things to deal with at their restaurants and other people wanting to do events and charity work. So I don't know how they keep track of everything to begin with, but uh, so many chefs I would have to email and nag and nudge. And I would say, hey, Remember that recipe? It was due this week. And then so many, oh, really? Was I supposed to do that? Yes. Yes, you were. (laughs) So keeping everybody on track was probably half the challenge. But uh, they were luckily all good sports about it and didn't mind me endlessly emailing them and calling them and texting them to Wazoo. So. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine how well you slept after those three months were over. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was a huge weight sort of lifted off me. I, I mean, the second book was um, a much different experience because I had a much longer time period. It was probably a more normal time period in that um, I had about, I'm going to say maybe seven months, six months to get the chefs on board and get the recipes, write all the chapter headings and edit everything. And whereas the San Francisco book came out within a couple months of me turning everything in, the East Bay Cooks project took probably over a year 
from start to actually debuting in stores, bookstores and whatnot. So it was a much more involved process in many ways, lots of layers of editing, which I really appreciated. I was actually blown away by how detailed the editing was and just how every little thing that needed to be questioned was questioned and things that I didn't even necessarily think about at the time. Like in that particular book, I wrote about a Mexican restaurant that used to be in Oakland. And that was when the uh, warriors were based there. And I think I wrote initially that it was a favorite of the warriors, this particular restaurant and especially Kevin Durant. And when it got to the copy editor stage, the copy editor actually emailed me and said, Hey, I happened to look him up. And I saw that he's going to be a free agent next year when the book comes out. Maybe we shouldn't mention his name in case he's no longer with the team. And lo and behold, he wasn't with the team anymore. But I was just so amazed that she even thought to do that. Yeah, it's amazing what a good editor can do. I have a whole new respect for just the wordsmithing and and just the foresight in something like that. What a good point, because you want the book to have some longevity. And Exactly. I mean, I think all of us who have ever worked on staff at a newspaper during the the very good times when it was fully staffed, we probably cursed many copy editors under our breath when they'd read our stories and send us back, send back to us five or six or whatever questions and to check, double check everything, spellings of things, calculations of numbers and percentages. But uh, wow, I appreciate them so much more now, especially when it's such a rarity to have them in the capacity that they used to be. So many newspapers now, um, especially for online work, the, the reporters often just write and then it's posted online and there's no level of detailed editing beforehand. It, it will get that once it goes into the paper, but because speed is of such the essence these days that a lot of times, yeah, things just kind of get posted online and, and you kind of just trust that everything is okay. It's so true. I've, I've caught many typos. Yeah, (laughs) you're probably like me, you you do your blog posts and then sometimes one of your really loyal readers or friends (laughs) will text you privately, hey, I think you have too many T's in this one word, it's a typo. I'm like, oh no, so I'll go back and change it and just thank, be so thankful that they, they read everything so carefully when... You know, you you read things over and over, and a lot of times you kind of just, your eyes get all glassy because you've just seen it too many times. Oh, my gosh. Yes. there. It's so easy to miss it, when, especially when you're mm-hmm. married to whatever you wrote. You've just <sighs> looked at it so many times, and it just kind of goes <laughs> exactly. over your head. <laughs> um, I love that for the East Bay cooks, you feature the East Bay. I mean, I live in the East Bay. I feel like not a lot of people... You know, when they think, oh, I'm going to go to San Francisco and I'm going to go to, you know, eat and go to Napa, people forget that there's the Livermore Valley, for example, and there's wine out here, too, and um, probably the first wineries that were out here in the Livermore Valley, and 
Um, and yeah, Wednesday, the longest uh, continuing operating winery. Exactly. And so I think it's wonderful that you wrote this book and, and shine a light on, on this whole little corridor that we have. I think that's uh, one thing that the chefs and the restaurants really appreciated. I mean, there's so many cookbooks about San Francisco, so many cookbooks about Napa, and so many chefs in those two regions have brought out their own cookbooks. But there really hadn't been a cookbook spotlighting the East Bay as an entire region. And it's kind of like you said, I think people forget how large the East Bay is. They forget Livermore, Pleasanton, Danville are part of the East Bay. They they so often just, their mind kind of just stops at Berkeley and Oakland, and that's the East Bay to most people. Right, right. Yeah, whenever I describe to somebody where I live, I always start, you know, you kind of start by the city and then you just keep going east, east, east. <laughs> and if they know it, then you're like, okay, I can go a little bit further. <laughs> exactly. Well, you've dined at some of the best places in the Bay Area and you've shared so many recipes on Food Gala as well. But what does home cooking look like for you? Are you are you constantly drawing inspiration from your the cookbooks that you've reviewed or are you just cooking like just from the heart, whimsically or throwing things together? I think it depends on the day of the week and what my schedule is like. I think a lot of times I'm just like anyone else out there and I look in the fridge and the freezer and I think, oh God, what am I going to make tonight? And you kind of just grab things that you think will go together or kind of riff on something that you've made in the past. And maybe you might not have all the exact ingredients, but you can make a pretty good facsimile of it. Other times I'm, yeah, I, I like to kind of play around with different cuisines and I love baking. So I'm always trying new recipes out of cookbooks. Gosh, I, for my comfort food, I don't know. I, I think that a lot of it revolves around sweets because I have an enormous sweet tooth. Um, I always joke that um, I kind of suffer from procrastinate baking, which I'm sure you've heard <laughs> that term. It's when you have all these deadlines in front of you and you know you should be doing them. And yet there are times where I just put that aside and say, I need to go bake some cookies right now. Not for any logical reason, but just because I think it's my stress relief and it's kind of like a mini vacation and you get this wonderful reward at the end, which is hopefully a great tasting warm cookie to enjoy. I bet. Well, yeah, it's super therapeutic. Yes. <laughs> and if you're going to procrastinate, it may as well be for something delicious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You share a lot of, well, some family recipes on your site. And I was really taken by the story of the Chinese sticky rice and how you have this love-hate relationship around Thanksgiving with the sticky rice. So can you tell everyone that story? Well, I haven't read that post in a while, but hopefully <laughs> this is what I'm thinking <laughs> So... Let me just start by saying that I urge everyone out there to get your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your favorite aunt, your older brother, whoever, to write down your favorite recipes because there's going to be a time when they're no longer there and you will crave that not only for the taste, 
but for the memories that it brings back. And your relatives, especially parents, are going to be like, no, we don't want to do this or just watch me. You know, I just throw a little this, little that. And it's not precise and it's not going to come out tasting exactly like you remember. So sit them down. And if you have to force them to make the dish in front of you and measure everything and write it down. And I guarantee that you will never, ever regret doing that. I mean, I wish I had done that more with my parents when they were alive, because as it is, I have maybe a handful of recipes and I wish that there were so many more. So the sticky rice was something my mom always made at Thanksgiving. And I remember kind of playing around with it at times uh, that when I got older as an adult and I would host Thanksgiving for my family. And one time I thought I would just play around and use black rice instead. And let's just say that did not go over well. (laughs) I think, well, the thing with Thanksgiving too is people want what they want because it's the one time of year they get this thing, whatever it might be. Uh, I mean, I remember one year I tried to make my own cranberry sauce and it was good, but everybody wanted the stuff out of the jar. I mean, out of the can, you know, where it just comes out in one big plop. Yeah. And so from then on, I was like, okay, that's all. I'm never going to make my own again. I'm just going to buy the canned stuff. So the the black sticky rice did not go over very well. I think people sort of looked at it. My brothers, my mom kind of just gave me this look like, what is this? And <laughs> to be honest, it was not... It was not my mom's. And I think everybody wanted my mom's version because it was... It wasn't anything necessarily fancy. It was just the sticky rice and she cooked it with shiitake mushrooms and a lot of times either the Chinese sausage lap chong or the barbecued chasu pork Mm -hmm. and a little oyster sauce, a little soy sauce. And it was just, you ate it and you had this wonderful homey feeling and that's what you want at Thanksgiving and what you want when you're surrounded by your family enjoying this feast at a table. So I think if anything I learned from that, uh, it's good to experiment at times, but sometimes just stick to the classics and the traditional because there's nothing wrong with them and they don't need to be improved upon. Yeah, that's such a good reminder, especially when, you know, people like us, I think we just like to play with our uh-huh, food and exactly. try something new. And when you said that, it just brings back my husband who says like things like, why can't you just make it the same every exactly. time? Like, why are you changing it? Probably especially because he hears throughout the day that you're going to make this dish. So he's thinking, oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. I love that last time you made it. And then when you bring it out and it's slightly (laughs) different, he's just so disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to leave well enough alone Mm -hmm. and just enjoy. Are you going to make the sticky rice for Thanksgiving this year? I hope to. I remember, you know, last year was a weird Thanksgiving because I did not gather with anyone else except my husband. And we sort of even contemplated, do we want to cook a whole turkey and do Thanksgiving? It's just the two of us. But we did do it. And 
I can't remember now if I made the sticky rice or not, because I have to say, unfortunately, my husband is not a big fan of sticky rice for whatever reason. Oh, I have yet to convert him, but maybe I will this Thanksgiving. So, yeah, I, I think it's worth another shot. a huge bowl in front of him and tell him that you have to try this again, because really, you're going to love it. So hopefully that will happen. Fingers crossed. So Carolyn, <laughs> do you have anything new and exciting um, in the loop or what's, what's next for you? Well, things are still a little status quo because we are still in pandemic times. Unfortunately, I, I was actually writing a sister cookbook to East Bay cooks Ooh. in, I started it in March, 2020. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I had written a couple of chapters. I had tested maybe five recipes and then yes, the pandemic hit. And it is again, very similar book to East Bay cooks with restaurants involved in it. And my publisher had to talk with me and we both agreed we couldn't really see going forward at this time with this book. And this was, we were talking last year because you didn't know how many of these restaurants you were writing about would actually make it through this very harrowing time. And you don't want to come out with a book a year later where half of them are no longer in existence because the book just doesn't make sense that way. So I think we are probably going to talk again toward the end of this year and sort of see where things stand. It's still kind of a, a difficult time to, to start work on a book like this because restaurants are still sort of getting back to where they were. And it's still, I think for a lot of them kind of touch and go. Thank, thankfully, knock on wood, we are doing fairly well in terms of low infection rates, but winter is coming again and who knows what that may bring. Um, hopefully nothing bad and we will continue to sort of progress the way we have and get closer and closer back to normal. And if we do that, then I'm very hopeful that this book will go forward because I'm really excited about this one. It would be actually uh, about Silicon Valley restaurants. Oh. And again, sort of like the East Bay region, I don't think there's been a book that really has encapsulated the whole dining scene here and sort of put a spotlight on the variety of restaurants that we have here in the South Bay, from Michelin-starred restaurants to, um, you know, we probably have the biggest uh, contingent of Korean restaurants in the entire Bay Area down here. So yeah. just to, to sort of introduce people to places that they might not have known existed or to highlight some of the favorite big name restaurants that they've had the pleasure of dining at before. Well, I really do hope that you get to see the book come to fruition. The South Bay is incredible. So much good food. One of my dearest friends, like she, she literally will drive down every I don't know. It almost seems like once a week, but she literally will bring back a haul of good food. 
She drives from the East Bay to the South Bay specifically wow. to do like a food crawl and oh bring it all God. home. That's um, impressive. So yeah, she she doesn't go from the East Bay to San Francisco, but she's going from East Bay to Silicon Valley and South Bay. Yes, that yeah. says a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and it's there's so much good food to to share. So I really do hope that when time is right, it comes out. I hope so too. So I have some closing questions before I let you go, if you don't mind. Okay. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you just need an emergency go-to meal? Probably some kind of stir fry because it's so easy and you can make it with almost anything, any kind of protein or tofu and any kind of vegetables that you have in the house. I mean, I think at times I even just kind of load it onions into the dish if I've had nothing else but you serve that over a mound of fluffy white rice and it's just amazing the other thing on the other side of the spectrum probably would be something with pasta um it's probably a a go-to Italian like dish that many people make which was any kind of noodles with uh um tuna packed in olive oil and Mix that up with some capers, some garlic, some lemon, um, maybe some fresh herbs like parsley and basil. And it's just so flavorful. Yeah, I love so good capers. One of these brainless dishes to make. Yeah, it's a good pantry dish. Yes, exactly. Um, What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Probably my mom's tomato beef chow mein recipe. So again, I had to yank it out of her. I actually did a story years ago for the Mercury News where I think it was a Mother's Day story where I wrote about my love for her tomato beef chow mein, which is this kind of old school American Cantonese dish that really you don't find much anymore except on really, really old school Chinatown restaurants and I I remember she didn't want the attention she's like you're gonna write about this dish and me and I said yes and we're gonna have a photographer come to your house and she's like oh no 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 you know how Asian moms are right and so but I think in the end she was really happy with the way it came out and I actually cooked that dish in my one and only live cooking demo, which happened to be at Macy's Union Square. And it's a dish that is just representative of her and our family. And I think the the love and devotion that she had to us, she made this up herself and it was something we always looked forward to. It's just sort of, noodles that you crisp up in the pan first and then you set it aside and then you mix up this canned tomatoes with I like to throw in some heirloom summer ones when I make it in season and then some flank steak and again some soy sauce oyster sauce some Chinese black vinegar and you just toss it all in a wok and it's kind of it's very umami forward, very savory, but it's got the sweetness of the tomatoes and then this tangle of both soft and crispy noodles. I posted on I posted that recipe on my blog quite a few years ago, and even now I get 
emails every now and then from people, not just around the country, but other parts of Asia who maybe they live in the U.S., but then they move back to Hong Kong or something. And they always remark about how they grew up eating this as a kid. There was some restaurant in Chinatown in their in their city or some old little mom and pop cafe that used to make this and they can't find this dish anymore and they really miss it. So I always encourage them to try making my mom's version because I swear everyone who has made it has really loved it. I, I have to try it. It actually you reminds me. have to try it to tell yeah, me what you think. <laughs> I will. Yeah. And the way you describe it too, it actually reminds me of my old college apartment mate, um, Lisa. She had a recipe that she would cook for us that had the beef and the, we called it the beef and tomatoes dish, but it had oh. beef and tomatoes. But I think the other thing that stood out for me was um, the sugar that you can get in the. In oh, the, the rock sugar? The rock sugar. Oh. Thank you. Um, but this sounds so delicious. I have to try it. You do. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay. I want you, a full report back. <laughs> oh, I will. I will. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? Oh, gosh. I think if you ask my husband, who's also at times my dishwasher, <laughs> he would say messy because he's the type who will clean as he goes. I try and do that, but I'm not always successful about it. So I try to be neat. I'm not a a, a, a flat out slob when I'm cooking, but um, definitely you'll find flour on the countertops and maybe a little spill here and there. But um, I think that's part of the magic of cooking, right? Oh, I totally agree. We're very similar. <laughs> I know that when I'm in it, just you know, I, I can't stay neat anymore. And oh, yeah. I start out neat and then it ends up like, <laughs> you need to concentrate on the task at hand, not that little splotch over in the corner or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. What's a good kitchen tip? Oh, what's a good kitchen tip? Well, let's see. Let me think about that. I would say always be willing to try anything once. And I tell this sometimes, um, I've told it sometimes over the past few years when I used to talk to high school classes or college journalism classes. And I would tell people, you might hate a particular ingredient or a dish right now, but that doesn't mean you're always going to hate it because your tastes change in food just like they do in music, in hairstyles, in clothing. So the same thing with food. I mean, myself, um, gosh, I hate to admit this, but the very first time I tried black truffle shaved over a pasta, I think I was maybe 20. And I thought, what's the big deal about this? It tastes like dirt. I, you know, it was totally I don't get it. stymied me. I was like, people pay how much for this? And it's supposed to be this very luxurious thing. And I thought, I just don't see it. But years later, it's, wow, it is just an amazing ingredient. And now I really can't appreciate it, especially one that is just so aromatic that the minute they, even before they bring it to the table, you can kind of smell it making its way to you. It's uh 
it's something I've definitely learned to appreciate. And I would say also the same thing about oysters for the longest time when I was, again, in my late teens, early twenties, I had tried oysters every way there was fried, barbecued, broiled raw. And I just thought they were gross. <laughs> I just, again, didn't see the appeal, but now I love them. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to eat. Um, especially hog island oysters the best. on the half shell. Yeah. I mean, I don't even want to put anything else on them because those oysters in particular are just so sweet and just so wonderful as they are. Oh, I haven't had hog island in quite a while. I really, I should go up there. That would be a good little field trip. Good. <laughs> the weather's perfect. That's true. Every Friday, I try to share five little things, something that made me smile during the week. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Well, talking to you on this, definitely (laughs) a fun highlight and something out of the norm, especially during this time. Gosh, any other fun things? Um, I'm going to try baking. I guess it's called a breakfast cake out of this new cookbook, which I'm excited about because yes, I get to bake and it gives me an excuse. It's not just for me personally, but it's because I'll probably end up blogging about it later on. Um, I was actually thinking I had it marked on my calendar that Monday had my mom still been alive today on Monday. She would have been 101 Oh, wow. Yeah, and I thought, wow, what a milestone that would have been. And it just kind of made me remember a lot of great experiences that I had with her. And I was glad that um, there was sort of that calendar reminder to take me out of the everyday hecticness and to just sort of concentrate on that one moment and to remember her like that. So nice to have good memories to call upon. and I think the older we get to, the more we appreciate those kind of memories. Yeah. Because I think as kids, right, we were like, we don't want anything to do with our parents. We just want to hang out with our friends or whatever. And I think as we get older, we, we, we start to appreciate them much, much more and just value so much what they did for us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really, really do appreciate it. And can thank you tell you. everyone? Oh, you're welcome. Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Well, you can find me on my blog at foodgal.com. And then fairly regularly in the pages of the Knob Hill Gazette, which I write folk stories for, and then often in the San Francisco Chronicle. Perfect. Thank you again, Carolyn. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. It was fun to be on the air with you and best of luck with the new podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Carolyn Jung for joining us today. Carolyn's always had a pulse on the food community here in the Bay Area. So if you're ever looking for what's new and delicious, definitely give her a follow. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.